to episode 154 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Ross Wirtiton, Lauren Mall, Alice Barnard, Debbie Restein, and Katie Sullivan. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and I appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week, our film review is We Summon the Darkness. We Summon the Darkness was released in 2019. It has 5.2 out of 10 on IMDb and 69% on Rotten Tomatoes. Three best friends embark on a road trip to a heavy metal show where they bond with three aspiring musicians and head off to one of the girls' country home for an after party. So as per usual, I'm going to do the likes, I'm going to do the dislikes and we're going to try and keep this short and sweet. My likes for this film. I loved the setting. The 1980s rock scene. I think it was set in 1988 specifically. It was slap bang in the middle of the satanic panic. So that fit in really well with this spate of satanic killings that is happening around these metal concerts and rock concerts. The fashion was impeccable. It was to die for. And I felt like when I was watching it, the girls were everything that I wanted to be when I was a teenager. Like I wanted to be that cool rock girl. Did I ever quite manage it? Absolutely not. Would I manage it now? Still absolutely not. And a part of me, I think, still wants to be that cool rock girl. I just need to let it go. You know, it's never going to happen. But if you were into that kind of scene, it's great. The conversations that they have around music, around bands like Metallica and Megadeth, oh, they're great. And they felt really nostalgic in a really good way. The acting was genuinely really good. I think sometimes in a lot of slasher movies, the acting becomes secondary to getting in as many kills as possible. But all the characters were believable. I, you know, I was rooting for some of them. Like, I I enjoyed it. I thought, yeah, no, this is good acting. I'm impressed with this. And as well as that, I did also, at some level, enjoy the storyline. I thought the storyline was... Uh, you know, it was it was trying to be a bit different, which kind of leads into my dislikes a little bit. Like, I enjoyed the storyline because it was trying to be different, but I don't think it was as out there as the filmmakers thought it was. Like, I thought it was quite obvious what was going to happen. And it seemed like the film was making some some sort of commentary on the hypocrisy and like profiteering of some branches of organized religion. But they didn't actually say anything particularly groundbreaking about it. And it wasn't particularly interesting. Like it was good. It was a little bit different. But I wasn't blown away by it. I thought they could have done loads more interesting stuff with it. And in order to reveal these hypocrisies in the particular church that they're focused on. You ended up with loads of monologuing from from the main character was there was just a lot of monologuing that went on for way too long and I feel like there could have been some sort of other exposition that we could (laughs) that we could have found out the the nitty-gritty details in another way and look I love a villain monologue like I think they're great but sometimes they can be overdone I found as well that I ended up getting quite bored and I think this is what happens when I watch slasher films and why I don't particularly like them because once you get past the reveal there's also reveal and once you get past it then it's just a sequence of running, hiding, fighting and gory deaths. And that gets gets a bit boring after a while. You're kind of a bit like, okay, let's just wrap it up and see who survives, you know? The last thing I think that was pretty criminal about this movie is that Johnny Knoxville is in it. That's not what makes it criminal. I actually quite like Johnny Knoxville. 
he played a role that could have been fantastic. It could have been out of this world. He's only in it for quite a short period of time, but I felt like they wasted his character. Completely wasted it. So I'm going to give this film, I think, three out of five. If you like slasher movies, it's definitely not going to waste your time. But if you're looking for something groundbreaking, this isn't it. It's kind of, it's a bit predictable at times. It tries to be a bit out there and kind of fails a bit miserably. But if you like 1980s rock music, this is, this is a film for you because it will feel really nostalgic. So three out of five. Is that the record for the quickest film review I've ever done? Because I think it might just be. I'm actually impressed with myself for that one. And it brings us swiftly to our story this week, which has nothing to do with 80s metal or the satanic panic. But we're just going to get into it. I need to give a warning for this episode that there's a lot of talk of death, general gory stuff, some pretty gruesome details that aren't necessary to the story. But I know that some people listen with their kids, so it might be that you might want to check this one out first before... You listen with your kids just in case. The mist settled over the lagoon, making the water look as though it were piping hot. The cities were sleeping, and the only sound was the rhythmic slap of the oars against the water. This was his favourite time of day. The quiet twilight before dawn made him feel like he was connecting with something deeper, something more primal. His father had been a fisherman, and his father's father, and on and on for generations. He didn't really believe in fate or destiny, but sometimes he thought that it was his family's destiny to fish the lagoon and feed his people, and he was thankful for it. He lazily dipped his oars into the still water and watched as the mist began to shimmer with the rising sun. It was time for him to make his way back to the shore, his net brimming with fish, and set up his stall before the people were up and about for the day. He began to turn his boat, groaning softly at the effort, but stopped abruptly when he saw the island loom in front of him. He hadn't realised he had drifted this close. Damn it. His idle musings about fate and destiny meant he hadn't been paying close enough attention, and now there it was rising out of the mist like some sort of creature from the abyss. He had done this before, once before, and had sworn that he would never get this close to the island again. He began to row, hard and steady, with sweat beading on his brow. He needed to move fast and silent. He could feel his skin turn cold and his hair beginning to stand on end, despite the exertion of rowing. It was like the evil was rolling from the island, across the water and into his boat, seeping into his pores. He began to shiver. He didn't dare to look at the island, fearful of what he might see. Each stroke of the oar was taking him that bit further away from the island and that bit closer to relief. Finally, he was far enough away that he began to feel safe again. He slowed down his rowing, and his heart rate began to steady. He stopped and wiped his brow, allowing himself to breathe deeply. What a stupid thing to do. How many times had he warned new young bright-eyed fishermen to stay away from the island? 
and there he was, nearly landing on its shore before he even realised what was happening. He twisted his body to take one look at the island before making his way home, and just as he did so, a lone bell pealed from the bell tower, and then he heard the most pitiful sound he had ever heard. A scream of terror. A woman. The scream was cut short, silenced, and all that remained was the echo of the bell in his memory. He turned, fixed his eyes in the direction of home, and rode with all of his might. The island is 17 acres, and admittedly very beautiful. It is lush and green and inviting, and for the uninitiated, it looks like a place that you would strive to get to. Venice was formed in the 5th century AD, after people fled from the mainland to escape the advances of Attila the Hun. The people fled to islands on a lagoon on the northeast coast of Italy, but soon there simply wasn't enough space to accommodate the fleeing people, and as people so often do in times of crisis, they adapted, and they built an island by driving more than 100,000 wooden poles deep into the muddy floor of the lagoon, and thus the watery city of Venice was born. And while today we think of Venice as a place of romantic beauty, immortalised by Shakespearean drama and the lust of Casanova, it has been ravaged by disease again and again throughout history. Because Venice was a bustling metropolis and a gateway to Italy, it became a thriving trade point for merchant ships from all over the world. The Venetians were seafaring people, and spices and silks from the four corners found their way to its shores. And so did disease. And once a disease had found its way to the island city, there was no way of stopping it. In 1348 alone, half of the population of Venice was wiped out by the plague but plague outbreaks continued to obliterate the population right up until the 1800s. As a result of this, the island of Povelia became crucial in the fight against disease. It became a quarantine island. When two sailors were detected to have brought the plague back to Venice in 1793, local government acted fast. Entire ships were quarantined on Povelia, Anyone in Venice or the surrounding islands showing symptoms of the plague were immediately shipped to the island. Bodies of those who were dead or dying were shipped over to the island to be burned. A barge would be sailed through the canals of Venice and at each intersection bodies would be piled up onto it and rowed out to the island. Historians conservatively estimate that 100,000 people have died on Pavalia and their bodies were disposed of either by mass burnings or in huge grave pits. So numerous were the bodies that were disposed of on Povelia that local legend states that the island actually became a few inches higher because of the layer of ash that settled over the island from the constant cremations. And then there were the vampires. In 2009, Italian researchers found the remains of a woman buried in a plague pit. Not unusual, as the plague pits held the bodies of men, women and children of every age, class and creed. 
the plague did not discriminate in that regard, and the authorities did not discriminate when it came to disposing of threat. This skeleton, however, was different. Wedged between her jaws was a brick. Prior to a more scientific understanding of the plague and how it spread, there was a widespread belief that the plague was spread by vampires, who roamed the street at night and passed diseases to unwitting victims while feeding upon them. These thoughts were only solidified when gravediggers would reopen mass graves and would be horrified by what awaited them. They would come across bodies with their hair and nails still growing, bodies looking fresh and bloated because of trapped gases, some bodies moaning and groaning as gas escaped from their mouths. And most terrifyingly, some would have seemingly eaten their way through the shroud that was over their head, leaving a hole where their mouth was, and therefore showing their teeth. In order to remove the threat of the vampire, the shroud had to be removed and something inedible placed in their mouth, like a rock or a brick. It's important to note two things here. And the first is that this story is often said to have happened on Pavalia, but it didn't. It happened on Lazaretto Nuvo, which was another quarantine island to the north of Venice. Secondly, we now understand that the process of human decomposition is complex. The hair and nail growth is simply an illusion, caused by the skin around the follicles retracting as it dries out. The moaning, the bloating and the excretion of blood is caused by natural gases building up during decomposition and the holes in the mouth of the shroud were caused by natural bacteria present in the mouth of humans. While we intellectually are aware of these things today, at the time the threat of vampires was very real and did nothing to dispel the air of evil that clings to the island still to this day. In 1814, Povelia Island closed its doors as a quarantine station and sat in silence once more. Or so you would think. For years, the local people steered clear of the island because of their fears about the proximity to disease. But after time had passed, it was apparent that something had remained on the island. Whether it was a shadow or an echo, they did not know. But no one was willing to find out. After he had unwittingly steered his boat to the island, he lay in bed that night thinking about it. He thought about the sound of the bell peeling out over the water and the sound of that scream of terror that followed as though the bell symbolised the beginning of something awful. He lay and remembered a story his grandfather had told him about the island. It was one of those hushed and quiet conversations that felt monumental in importance as though his grandfather was exposing something that caused him great torment. His grandfather was out one morning fishing near the island. He had of course heard all the stories and he was wary but not too bothered. His aim was to catch fish and feed his family and if he stayed off the island he would be fine. As he fished he felt his hook snag on something. Damn it. He tugged gently hoping not to lose his hook. It was a big one and they were just that tiny bit more expensive so he wanted to keep it if at all possible. He tugged again a bit harder this time, but still nothing. He sighed and stood up in his small boat, 
loosening his knees and locking his core to keep his balance, and he tugged again. With a soft pop, whatever he was snagged on came loose, and he began to reel in the fishing wire. He reeled, expecting to see some weeds from the bottom of the lagoon, or a piece of wood soft and decayed over time. But what he saw made him gasp and stumble backwards. The boat rocked and swayed with a sudden force, and he grappled to hang on to his fishing rod. There, attached to the end of his hook, was a child-sized, perfectly formed section of human ribcage. There was no denying what it was. It was plainly obvious. And he had heard stories for years of fishermen pulling up their nets to see them tangled with human bones. But he thought it was just a rumour, and good storytelling. He held on to the side of the boat and watched as the ribcage slowly sank back into the abyss, disappearing under the still rippling water. In a panic, he took out his knife and cut the line. The hook could be sacrificed. Feeling shaken and adrenaline sick, he picked up his oars to row back to shore. His back was turned to the island as he tried to steady his breathing in time with the strokes of his oars. He thought it was his imagination at first, but his hair began to prickle and stand on end, and he knew he wasn't imagining it. It was as though every other sound disappeared and it was all he could hear. It was crying. A child crying. There was nowhere else it could be coming from except the island. He couldn't turn around. He knew it wasn't real. It couldn't be. But what if it was? How could there be a child on the island? There was just no way. Despite everything he had heard, everything he had been told, despite every fibre of his being telling him not to do it, he turned around. And there, standing on the shoreline, was a little girl. She was ankle deep in the water with her arms outstretched towards him. And she was sobbing, tears streaming down her face. And then he heard her words. Please. Please don't leave me here. That was it. He had to go back. How she had gotten there didn't matter. He just needed to get her off the island and back to shore. He turned the boat around. Hold on, I'm coming, he shouted to her, trying to make his voice sound reassuring. But as he looked up, he saw her melt away into nothing, until the shoreline was empty again. He blinked, thinking he just couldn't see her silhouetted against the trees. But she was gone, and the only sound that was left was the sound of the water gently lapping against the sides of the boat. The girl on the shore was, and still is, a regular sighting. And many have reported seeing the shadows of people moving through the tree line on the shores of the island. And there are ways that these things can be dismissed. A trick of the mind, maybe. Tired eyes, or an illusion caused by the sun bouncing on the waters of the lagoon. The sounds were harder to dismiss, though. When the night was particularly still, people would hear the screams and moans of the dead and dying coming from the long-abandoned island. It was believed that these were the last desperate cries of the plague victims as their bodies succumbed to the disease. But then there was another sound that was heard. A sound that still struck fear into the hearts of the living. 
a bell would ring out from the island. And the screams that followed were screams of pure terror. In the 1920s, it was decided that Povelia would be used again as somewhat of a quarantine island, but for very different patients. It would become the home of a lunatic asylum. For 40 years, a psychiatric facility lived on Povelia, where patients were shipped from the mainland to be treated on the island. Local stories and legends detail the horrific treatment that patients received on the island. When they arrived, they would cower in fear at the sight of the plague victims who wrapped in white shrouds would move silently through the buildings and the vegetation. No one listened to them. No one took them seriously. Because of course these people were on the island because they were considered mentally unwell. The nurses who cared for the patients simply assumed that the constant fear and talk of ghosts was the result of hallucinations, rather than anything more sinister. And similarly, when murmurings began about the evil doctor, no one paid them any attention. When the bell tolled on the island, all of the patients would stop. All of them, regardless of their mental state. It was as though the bell ringing caused everyone to hold their breath in anticipation of something. Or in this case, someone. The bell ringing signalled his arrival. He would move through the hospital almost silently like a ghost, the only sound being the soft swish of his white coat that billowed out behind him. In the beginning, the patients would hide as soon as they heard the bell, scattering like mice trying to find nooks and crannies to conceal themselves. But soon they realised that no matter where they hid, he would always find them. He knew who he wanted, and he would get them, one way or another. When he had chosen his victim, he would stand in front of them with his arms behind his back, rocking slightly on the balls of his feet. The orderlies would come, flanking him like predators, and the patient would be deftly taken away. Most of the time they went quietly, recognising that any resistance was futile. But every so often a patient would decide that they were not going to go up there without a fight and they would kick and scream and bite and flail and make life as difficult as possible for the staff. Sometimes the other patients would hear them screaming the whole way to the room, but the screams would be cut short, and then there would be silence. And sometimes the silence was more terrifying than the noise. It wasn't that this doctor was going against the grain, Lobotomies were widely used as a treatment for mental illness from the 1930s onwards. But it seemed like this doctor performed lobotomies indiscriminately, sadistically, almost as though it was for his own pleasure. There was no build-up to the lobotomy, there was no worsening of symptoms for the patient, and seemingly no desire to actually help. He simply chose patients at random, and no one was going to be able to stop him. The patients would return from the lobotomies meek and subdued, a shell of a human being. And they supposed that that was the bit that he liked. More than the ice pick being pushed into their brain, he liked to see the subservience afterwards. Sometimes when patients spoke about him in hushed whispers, they would wonder if he had always been like this. Had he become a doctor because he wanted to torture people? Had he come to Bavalia because no one would stop him or even question him? or had being on the island turned him into a monster. As time wore on, 
rumours began to spread that it was not just lobotomies that were happening in that room and the fear and resentment grew and grew. More and more patients were fighting back, refusing to go quietly and the doctor was becoming more agitated. He was struggling to sleep. He had terrible nightmares where he was attacked by the people he had taken into the room. Nightmares where he would wake up sobbing and dripping in sweat. For the first time in his life, he felt afraid. He felt as though something was happening. A change was in the air. As he went about his day on the island, he began to hear whisperings. Every time there was a moment of silence, he would hear it, a muffled whispering that sounded like the voices of many people. It was everywhere he went on the island, and it permeated every single moment of silence. He began to see shadows out of the corner of his eyes while he was working. Multiple times he had investigated for fear that a patient was where they were not supposed to be. But each time there was nothing. The shadows would dart across doorways and peer around door frames. It was as though he was always being watched. And eventually he stopped checking. Stress, he told himself. He was working too hard. And he was overtired and overworked. But one of the most important rules about working in a psychiatric environment is that you never assume it's your imagination. Ever. The doctor was in the bell tower when he felt the atmosphere change. He felt a chill in the air and felt the hairs on his arms stand on end. Something was afoot. He shook his head and scolded himself for being so paranoid. As he worked, he thought he saw a shadow dart past the doorway. And again, he told himself to calm down. There was nothing here. The sunlight was streaming through the huge windows and all was good. He was overthinking. But as he worked, he felt the unmistakable sensation of being watched. That cold, prickly feeling at the back of his neck. He battled with himself as to whether to check or not. He knew he was being ridiculous. How many times had he checked before and there was nothing? He sighed, knowing that he was losing the battle with his paranoid brain. He turned and gasped slightly, because standing in the doorway was a man, a patient. He couldn't remember his name, but he knew his face. At least he thought he knew his face. The man's face was distorted with anger and hatred. He stood in the doorway, breathing heavily with his fists clenched, and then he stepped into the room. What happened next is anyone's guess, and there are multiple stories that speculate how the doctor ended up on the rocks at the foot of the bell tower. A group of patients had managed to escape their wards, and made their way quickly and quietly to the bell tower. They had, in their words, intended on beating up the doctor. They wanted to threaten him, and frighten him enough that he would stop with his experiments. Some say the patients went too far and threw him from the tower, but they swore blind that something else had happened. Something far more terrifying. As the doctor backed away from the advancing group, the latch on the window behind him slowly slid across and the window creaked open. The room was so full of tension and panic that no one really noticed it happening. As the doctor backed away, he seemed to trip and fall through the open window and onto the rocks below. The patient swore, though, that a number of hands, shadowy and barely seen, seemed to grab and swipe at the doctor, 
pushing him through the window. But whatever happened, a nurse ran into the room just as the doctor plummeted to the rocks below. She ran to the window and looked down at his body. He was badly injured, but clearly still alive and moving. As she went to turn from the window to get help, something stopped her. A black mist was oozing from the rocks around the doctor. The mist seemed to engulf him, and he began to twitch and writhe, struggling to catch his breath as though being choked. The mist wrapped around his neck and his arms and his legs until he stopped breathing. Then it disappeared back into the rocks, leaving only his lifeless body behind. The psychiatric hospital was finally abandoned in the 1960s, and throughout the years the Italian government have made various attempts to sell or rent the island but to no success. There was one buyer who toured the island as he was interested in purchasing it, but his daughter was violently injured when a stone was hurled at her from seemingly nowhere. It hit her with such force that she required several stitches to close a wound in her face. There have been other reports of construction workers working on the island and abandoning their tools and refusing to return. In 2014, it was sold with the intention of turning it into a luxury resort, but this never came to fruition. Over the years, it has been used as a vineyard because of the ashy quality of the soil. As of 2019, the island sat empty and abandoned, but people still report strange happenings here. Lights are seen moving in and out of the vegetation. Cries are heard. A little girl is seen standing on the shoreline. And every now and then, the bell of the tower peels out across the lagoon. Before we go any further with our little analysis, the stories that you heard today are dramatised versions of the stories that exist. So let's go into what's really true and traceable about the island of Povelia, because I think that's probably important. The history of Povelia is very much true. It was a quarantine island. It was where people were sent if they had the plague. And at least 100,000 people are thought to have died there over the years. That is not an exaggeration. There are some historians that estimate conservatively that it's about 100,000 people and others who estimate that it could be inching towards 200,000 people. Which does make me wonder about uh, building a vineyard there because of the ashy quality of the soil. I mean, would you want your wine to be from the island of death? Where the soil is literally made up of the cremated remains of hundreds of thousands of people? Because I don't know if I'd want that. I mean, to me, to be honest, all wine tastes the same. Dead bodies or no dead bodies. So it wouldn't make much difference to me in terms of taste. But morally... Maybe it's not morally. I think psychologically I'd be like, this 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 vineyard was where? Oh, Pavelia. Oh, the, the island of the dead. Okay, that's where this wine comes from. Maybe I just won't have it with my pasta. Thank you very much. The story about the vampire that was found in 2009 was completely and utterly real. And it was a really big deal, actually, because it was one of those findings that allowed archaeologists to really understand and confirm the death rituals around what people at the time thought were vampires. So it was a really, it was a really interesting find. And she has this, you can Google pictures of the skeleton. She, her skull is, uh, she, she has this like huge brick wedged into her mouth. It's really quite disturbing to look at. And really disturbing when I, you know, read about it and I was like, oh, that's why they talk about vampires. There is also a really famous photo series for from a 
really famous photographer who's so famous that I can't remember his name now, which is not very helpful, where he went to the island of Povelia and took pictures. And there are those big plague pits that have like an, an outrageous amount of skeletons in them where you look and you think, how can how can there be that many people in those pits? And he took pictures of the remains of the psychiatric hospital, the signs for the psychiatric hospital. So that stuff, very much true. Very much true. However, the actual hauntings, I don't know what I feel about it. The story of the doctor is a local legend. And I think it is just that. I think it is very likely a local legend. There is nothing in anything that I read that suggests that that story was real. Seems like fiction. Seems like a good story that, you know, encompasses the hauntings of the plague victims and also references the uses the use of lobotomies at the time and how horrific that was it does match the timeline for lobotomies like they were widely used in the 1930s they became really popular and i guess kind of in modern times we look at lobotomies and we think i can't believe anybody did that to people but people did do it because they thought it disrupted this circuit in your brain that would allow you to have some sort of respite from the mental illness that you're suffering for and what I really found interesting about lobotomies is that I, I looked up the history of lobotomies in order to kind of check out the timelines and see did they did they make sense. I always thought lobotomies were an earlier thing, but they didn't happen until like the 1930s onwards. In terms of the success rate of lobotomies, so a third of patients who received a lobotomy would get better, a third would see no change, and a third would get progressively markedly worse. But the really fascinating thing about lobotomies is that in the immediacy after the lobotomy that the patient would generally present as very calm meek mild and subdued and then the real results would only come out afterwards like after a period of time so it's a really it's a really interesting I mean it's horrific in terms of our understanding of mental health but it is interesting to read about the BBC did a really good uh, breakdown of the history of lobotomies where they interviewed doctors who performed lobotomies and talk to them about why they changed their mind and why they did it in the first place and why they now think it's like this you know inhumane practice so there may have been a doctor on Pavelia who wasn't good to patients who was misusing lobotomies who was doing all of those things that may be absolutely true and it may be that he fell to his death but I, I would think that if there was a doctor in the 1930s onwards who had worked in Pavelia and fell to his death, there would be a record that you could definitively source and say, we don't know whether he was an evil doctor or whether he was mistreating patients, but we know that he died at this time in that hospital. But there doesn't seem to be a record that I can find. And I wonder then, like, how much of the stories of Pavelia have just grown up from its horrific history? So people are aware that, you know, 100,000 people at least died there over the years they're also aware there was a psychiatric hospital and as we know psychiatric hospitals at that time they generally weren't very good places at all it's also probably interesting to note that most of the stories about Povelia most of the chapters in books or articles that I read from various various news sources a lot of them cited ghost adventures as their source material for where they got their knowledge of these hauntings so I couldn't really figure out whether these hauntings were of local lore. I couldn't find any first-hand stories of people who had visited the island and had things happen to them or experienced something or had feelings aside from ghost adventures. There's lots of stories about people like, for example, photographers who have gone to the island and taken pictures and talked about how 
their own experience on the island, but there wasn't really anything particularly spooky. So it's interesting because you'd think, I mean, this place is is has a horrific history and it's got a really interesting history. And it's kind of the reason why we have quarantine at all is because of the use of these islands as quarantine stations. And then it became mainstream to do that in times of disease outbreaks. Really interesting that there was a psychiatric hospital, which, as we know, psychiatric hospitals at the time were very dark places. So there's every reason why it would be haunted, right? There's every reason why these things would exist. But there is actually very little material about the hauntings of Pavalia from first-hand witnesses, which I think is interesting. Let me know what you think about the island of Pavalia. Do you think that it's haunted or do you think that it is just haunted by its own history in that the stories have grown from people knowing the horrors that happened there? Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Real Life Ghost Stories. If you would like to know anything more about the podcast, you can check it out on reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. If you are feeling desperate for more content, you can sign up for more content on patreon.com forward slash reallifeghoststories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content. Thank you so much for listening. And on that note, I shall see you next time.